Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. Women who had been turned away, uh, who later were indeed found to be having a uh, myocardial infarct, where there was sort of this reevaluation, let's say, of what it means to have a heart attack for a woman. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres-ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. Hey, hey, Bettys. Welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It is me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And for those of you watching on YouTube, welcome to my new studio. You may notice the nice, dramatic, 
uh, black wallpaper in the background. I hope that you love it as much as I do. And today I have a special presentation for you. I was recently asked by Oxford University to present to their staff, the doctors, some Rhodes Scholars, clinicians, researchers that are working on the Oxford in the Oxford Longevity Project, some of the differentials that we have to consider uh, in the female population with respect to fasting. And I put in you know, as as you might expect, I over-prepared for my talk with them. And I thought afterwards, I was like, you know, I'm going to share this with my Bettys. I want to share this uh, with you as well. So we are going to, over the next several weeks, actually, I'm going to be sharing a little bit more of some of my, uh, my thinking, my body of work, uh, what I have been thinking about lately uh, when it comes to health, metabolism, human optimization. So would love to hear your feedback on um, some of the content that we're going to be putting out over the next couple of weeks. Don't worry, we're still doing interviews uh, with some of the world's thought leaders. But I thought, hey, I have this podcast and... I am, I would love to also share some of my thinking and some of the way that some of the ways that I approach uh, problems uh, in, in terms of, you know, in this case, fasting with for women, some of the common hormonal derangements, let's say that we might see and how we might, um, uh, how we might look at that. So I'm going to share with you my screen. For those of you that are watching on YouTube, for those of you that are watching on audio, this means absolutely nothing. So just bear with me. Okay. So for those of you that are watching uh, this, this is going to be really useful for you to sort of see what we're referencing. So if you're listening to this on the, on your audio feed, it's still absolutely fine. You're going to get a lot of, you're going to get a lot of great stuff, but you're also going to get some slides. uh, And then we'll make sure that we have the references in the uh, show notes as well. Okay. So this first slide, kind of funny, we have an on off switch for a man and then all the buttons and dials for a woman. It's kind of tongue in cheek, of course. Um, But we do want to be thinking about specifically with any tool that we are imparting or we're trying to implement, let's say for women, uh, we are far more complex in terms of our hormonal uh, landscape. And even honestly, even the term woman is kind of vague, right? Because a woman is going to move, even the individual woman is going to move through different hormonal environments over the arc of her life, right? So we have the time in her life when she is pre-menstrual. We have, of course, her reproductive years. And then we move in her 40s, we're moving into perimenopause. And uh, then in her 50s with, you know, kind of the mean age, somewhere between 50 and 52 years of age, she's going to go through menopause and then of course, post-menopausal. So even in the individual, right? Even in the same individual, we're going to get a large variation in terms of hormonal composition and then what her vulnerabilities are um, as well. So, okay. So this is just for, for those of you watching, uh, this is just my little intro slide. It's like, hi, I'm Stephanie. This is what I do. Uh, so podcast hosts, as you very well know, um, I also like to uh, call myself a card carrying nerd, Duolingo aficionado, and my chocolate short ribs have been known to make <laughs> grown men weep tears of joy. These are, these are my little shticks when I'm <laughs> on stage uh, and then a little bit, and then a little bit about me there as well. Um, now, of course I came into this work, I came into fasting. This is actually what I'm originally known for is talking about fasting and how these are, how fasting is different um, for women. Um, Because almost immediately, this is back when I was in clinical practice, had a brick and mortar practice in Toronto, Canada, uh, noticed that there was like a pattern difference that emerged between uh, females and their male counterparts. And it was off, it was more often than not, it was like a, you know, we'd be running a nutrition program, there'd be a fasting component, let's say maybe there's some ketogenic or some caloric restriction, like some kind of combination of the above. And we'd have like a husband and wife couple that were going through the program together. And of course, the guys would be kind of like strutting through the clinic going, man, Steph, like this is the best program since sliced bread. Like I have lost weight and my libido is back and I'm sleeping like a baby. And it was so much more often than uh, than not that, you know, that husband was followed by, you know, uh, his wife, you know, kind of slugging her feet being like, man, like we're eating the same damn things. And like, I've lost a pound and this guy's dropped 20, you know? 
So um, very early on, noticed a difference between men and women when it came to weight loss. Um, and fasting, of course, in recent years has emerged as this like premier tool in healthcare, right? So many women, uh, especially as it's as it's related to weight loss, because a lot of women want to learn how to lose weight, um, ha- have started adopting fasting practices with kind of a mixed bag of results. And I would also say as well, I've kind of noticed... Um, in this post-pandemic era, we can call it post-pandemic, I'm hoping. God, please, let's hope. Dear goddess Isis, please, can we call this a post-pandemic era? Uh, In this post-pandemic era, I've also been noticing that it's not just about weight loss anymore. We are, at least I'm noticing that people are really interested in kind of like a deeper level um, of health. Like people want like deep cellular healing. Um, and fasting, of course, can be a tool that we use um, in order to um, in order to facilitate that. And so off, like so often, you know, a woman or anyone who really wants to go to, you know, wants to lose weight, they might go to their allopathic physician. And what does the allopathic doc do? Well, you know, the only thing that really matters is calories in versus calories out without any, you know, sort of consideration for female physiology, for female hormones, largely because they don't know anything about it. Um, you know, menstrual cycles, phases of the menstrual cycle are not taken into account. And, you know, these women will kind of leave those appointments feeling like, God, like what the hell is wrong with me? Like, why can't I lose weight? It must, you know, or even worse, I've had many women report to me that doctors have kind of said to them, unfortunately, that it's like all in their head which is kind of a form of, in my opinion, gaslighting, because it's not that it's the woman's fault. It's just the doc that they're seeing doesn't know what to do with them. So it kind of pushes it back um, on them. So that's sort of the first reason why I was really attracted to it. And when I started looking and digging into the research, it's getting a lot better now. But back in like 2016, 2017, there was like, it was like scant, <laughs> you know, it was like slim pickings uh, when we were looking at uh, particularly female specific, the female specific evidence in this female specific literature. So, you know, fasting in women, very poorly studied. Um, it's kind of patchy at best. And, you know, with research, research is kind of the first step. Like we need good evidence-based research Uh, And without going on a tangent, I'll also say like that word evidence-based, I know I just used it, but it kind of gives me like a little bit of a, like a little nervous tick because people that like to throw that term around um, often don't really have a lot of clinical expertise. So everyone kind of runs around the internet and says, evidence-based, we got to be evidence-based. That's not evidence-based. And it's like, okay, evidence-based or research, what the literature the available literature dictates is it gives us information, right? In a very tightly controlled way. We absolutely need it, right? The clinical, like the clinician's job, so the doctors and the practitioners, it's their job to take that information and apply it and be able to pivot when necessary because patients are not lab rats. There's not uh, as much, there's not as you know, many, there's not a a controlled environment. There's not just one variable that's, let's say, being manipulated. So, you know, the clinician who's going to be working with women needs to be up to date on the available literature, let's say. She has to be able to apply that information, that literature to her patient base and have a good understanding of female physiology to be able to be able to make inductive and deductive, let's say, uh, conclusions based on what she's seeing in her patient population um, and be able to pivot uh, when needed. And this is, you know, in the in the lecture that I gave at Oxford, you know, this is really nowhere more uh, best um you know, exemplified in the, and you'll see up on the screen here, uh, you know, symptoms of a heart attack and the differences and how that presents differently between men and women. And even when I was in school, I was taught, you know, a heart attack is like shortness of breath, extreme chest discomfort or pain. It's like the radiating pain down the left side of the arm. And for a woman, That's not necessarily the case. She might present to the emergency room with a very bad headache, with indigestion or heartburn that's been going on for several days. And I think it's really only after there was like a, probably a, you know, a tipping point of 
women who had been turned away, uh, who later were indeed found to be having a uh, myocardial infarct, where there was sort of this reevaluation, let's say, um, of what it means to have a heart attack for a woman. So we need to really be cognizant, and I think that it's getting better now, uh, of the different uh, clinical presentations of, let's in this case, an MI uh, between a male um, and a female. And um, since we're talking about uh, MIs and cardiovascular disease, of course, the number one killer of men and women is CVD, cardiovascular disease. And even though women have a longer mean lifespan, let's say, than men, we, st it's still our number one killer. It's, so it's not necessarily um, that we don't get it, but there's a phasic shift in when we get this heart disease or cardiovascular disease. We tend to get it later on in life. And it's usually somewhere between a 10 to 15 year gap um, between like the mean CVD age of men versus uh, women. So there's a couple of explanations for, for why that is. Uh, one, obviously, uh, women have a menstrual cycle for about 40 or so years. Uh, so it's like we've given a blood donation every single month for 40 years. So there's a lot of turnover. Um, we have less iron as a result of that. For the women who have been uh, pregnant, uh, growing a placenta, of course, um, like being the, the process of being pregnant, uh, having a placenta, um, we have, um, you know, obviously men don't have a placenta ever at any point in their lives. Um, and this is like a wound healing defense strategy as well. So when we think about, um, even just from a teleological perspective, men evolved to heal from wounds quicker but with a cost, women did not evolve. Women evolved to protect their offspring, right? So as a general baseline, you'll find that you'll when you compare men and women of the same age, um, you'll often find that women will have a lower, lower systemic inflammation, lower prothrombotic response, for example, um, uh, between men and women. So women are sort of, uh, we'll say more advantageous, there's more advantageousness, uh, let's say, uh, of being a woman in that particular um, sense. The other thing, of course, obviously with pregnancy is menstruation, which I mentioned uh, just a moment ago um, with, you know, giving sort of a blood donation um, every month, but it's also very prevalent with women who go through early menopause. So women uh, with er who go through early menopause, meaning like when they're 40 years old or younger, have a two year lower life expectancy compared with uh, women with either a normal onset of menopause or late menopause, right? So data from the Framington Heart Study suggests that a, harm, a harmful cardiovascular risk profile may be more cause than consequence um, at the age of menopause. So there is almost a cardio, so all that to say, all that big jargon, all that, all those words, all that to say is that estrogen does seem to under, you know, in our reproductive years, estrogen does seem to confer a protective benefit for women while we are in our reproductive years. And so the women who are going through early menopause, let's say, uh, who are sort of robbed of that protective effect of estrogen, that affects their lifespan, right? They have a two-year lower life expectancy compared to other women. Um, and that, cardio that cardiovascular risk profile, right, is more causal than it is corollary, meaning that um, if you are not under, if you don't have that, let's say that protective effect of estrogen, uh, this might be causal versus um, just something that's happening alongside it as well. Um, okay. So one of the other things that I, I presented, which I thought um, was worth mentioning, this is something that I learned from Dr. Ethan Weiss, who was, uh, when he was on uh, the show, we talked a little bit about this. Um, is and this is related to cardiovascular disease as well is the clotting like the rate of clotting differences between men and women so one of the other things that uh i think is super cool so obviously we you know one of the big obvious differences between men and women is like the lack the presence or lack of a menstrual cycle at some point uh, in their lives but the other thing that's really cool betty's is that mammals us included, have a remarkably 
sexually dimorphic liver. Okay. So how, so this is where I start to like my nerd, my inner nerd is coming out now. Okay. So there's a tremendous signature difference between the genes that are turned on and off in the liver uh, of females and males. And of course, where are clotting factors made? Well, they're made in the liver. And, um, uh, Dr. Weiss was looking at, okay, well, is this like under the influence of estrogen? Is it under the influence of like sex hormones? And it turns out that, um, what, um, it's, it's not, it's not those things. It's actually growth hormone. We have, there is a sexually dimorphic pattern of growth hormone secretion. So what that means, and I'll put the 1984 cell paper here, uh, they called it the feminizing factor. Uh, but basically what they, um, described is men have a more call it like pulsatile, uh, release of growth hormone with longer intervals between those pulses and women, uh, have a much more continuous secretion with like shorter, very short intervals. Okay. So in rodents, you can actually inject growth hormone into a rodent in a particular way that can actually completely reverse the gene expression in the liver. And I laugh because like, I'm like, just, I have so much reverence for the, for the, for the human body, um, and for, and for how we are really different between, uh, males and females, even not, not even just the human body, but just even all the way down to the rodents, right? So in rodents, you can inject growth hormone in a particular way that can completely reverse the gene expression in the liver to make that liver more masculine, let's say in a female rodent and this, and, you know, more feminine, let's say, uh, in a male rodent. And, um, yeah. So I think that that's like very important, not really discussed either. And growth hormone, of course, when we think about, you know, some of the benefits of, of growth hormone, it's involved in maintaining muscle mass and it's involved in all of these different things. So it is kind of important to note that there are some sexual dimorphisms that are beyond, um, that are beyond just menstrual cycle. And so that's what I do now, right? So uh, as many of you know, you may have heard me uh, on the show talk about the Esteema Certification Program. This is why I now teach doctors and practitioners, right? These female-specific physiology, the clinical protocols, because we are not, as doctors, taught this. I was not taught this in my schooling. And so many of the um, practitioners that come into the program say the same thing. They're like, I did functional nutrition. I did all the courses and like, they kind of gave us basic science. So even the courses that are out there today, and I'm not poo-pooing on any school, but of course they don't have this kind of dialed in, um, uh, you know, curriculum that's specific to female patients and doctors and patients want protocols and tools that are going to help support their female patients. Or if you're the female client, you're like, I would like to go to a doctor who kind of knows a little bit more about my body and doesn't kind of look at me as like a small titrated version of a man. Right. And of course for women, as I mentioned, we have different seasons, right? We have different hormonal compositions over the arc of our life. And that leaves us particularly vulnerable to certain types of hormonal derangements. This is very true in perimenopause and as we're transitioning into uh, into our menopausal years. And from a clinical standpoint, and this is what I was telling the, the doctors and researchers at, at Oxford, we want to be educating. Uh, not only the we want to be educating the educators, uh, we want to be educating the clinicians who are who are patient facing. Um, and we also want to, you know, empower our women, our beautiful patients, um, so that we can teach them a little bit more about their body. I can't tell you if I had a dime, you know, my, my grandmother used to be like, if I had a dime for every time I saw a car you know, run a stop sign, I would be rich, you know? And if I, and if similarly, if I had a dime for every time a woman would come to me and say, I've only started paying attention to my menstrual cycle in my forties. Like I'm so embarrassed. Why didn't anybody tell me this before? I would be rich just on that alone. So essentially what we want to do is if you're a female, even if you're a practitioner or patient, you want to be able to understand and respond to your female body or your patient's female body, help her respond to her body in the way that that female body requires and expects. Okay. So there's a requirement and an expectation from that body that is not a little man. Please, please proceed uh, appropriately. 
Okay. So I was asked to speak um, on the differences uh, in terms of response uh, to fasting and females. And of course, uh, as I mentioned at the top of this conversation, uh, weight loss is a really big uh, sort of draw, let's say, to why fasting has become so popular. It is very much a form of caloric restriction, which is going to result in uh, at least transient uh, weight loss. Um, autophagy is another uh, reason. So autophagy, I like to explain it as like Pac-Man going after all the little pellets, right? You, you get the cherry, you get the ghosts, and then, you know, you get all the things, and then you can move to the next level. Um, fasting also facilitates clearance of senescent cells or what's often referred to as like zombie cells. These are cells that are just like kind of hanging around, but like doing nothing. I like to call, you know, in, you know, if you're Canada, if you're in Canada, you'll kind of get this joke. It's like this, like the passport office right now. <laughs> it's like No one's there. Um, so, you know, it's, it's sort of, uh, like they're just kind of zombie cells, right? Like they're hanging around, like the office is still there, but there's no government officials in there. Um, and yes, that's a direct knock on the on the Canadian government. Um, but and I'm sure it's it's true in every in every uh in every country where there's like you go to the DMV, like, oh my God, the lineup that you wait. Like I've been to the DMV, like the you know, Department of Motor Vehicles. And uh when I lived in the States, I remember going there when I was in living in New York, and I was like, oh my God, this is terrible. <laughs> so that's sort of like what fasting does. It's like getting rid of all of the inefficient workers at the DMV or the Canadian passport office. Uh, and of course it reduces, there's a, you know, a, when you're fasting, you are going to help reduce systemic inflammation, inflammatory pathways. Uh, it does augment or improve, let's say longevity genes. Uh, so there are things like, um, HDAC inhibitors. I won't get into this, but this is like histone deacylase uh, inhibitors. There's FOXO genes, which when we look at, let's say centenarians and supercentenarians, uh, they have, uh, kind of the optimal expression, um, of these genes. And then of course it also helps with metabolic flexibility, which is kind of a, you know, generally, generally term. It's sort of a wishy-washy term, but basically the way that I would define it is your ability to use, um, an alternate substrate to glucose, uh, for fuel. So glucose, the molecule of life, right? Every single cell in the body uses glucose. Um, but we also want to be able to, um, use alternate substrates. So things like, uh, you know, free fatty acids, amino acids and ketone bodies, et cetera, in order to generate, uh, power or ATP. And then the other thing, of course, that I've noticed, uh, clinically is that, um, when a, a woman or a man is fasting, what we see is a clinical improvement and they've been doing this consistently in a way that's like, you know, manageable and reasonable uh, for them to do over time that we will see a clinical improvement in all markers of metabolic syndrome. So metabolic syndrome is kind of a constellation, if you will, of five main things. So uh, if someone with metabolic syndrome is going to have an increase in uh, blood glucose, so their blood glucose uh, is going to be elevated, uh, they're going to have abdominal obesity or, you know, you know, if you wanted to state that properly, you might say an ectopic fat distribution. So for women, that might be uh, excess abdominal obesity, like central obesity, like through the tummy, um, high triglycerides. So you're, you have high tags, you have high uh, or rather low, uh, high density lipoproteins, um, and then high blood pressure as well. And I think to qualify for metabolic syndrome, you need three of the five. Um, so fasting helps with all of that. The other thing, of course, that I mentioned before with growth hormone, when I was talking about the sexually dimorphic liver, growth hormone, as I mentioned, is known to um, pres help preserve muscle mass and bone density for my perimenopausal and menopausal women. That's very, very important. Like many other things, like many other hormones, growth hormone also, and the secretion uh, whether it's pulsatile or continuous, you know, whether you're male or female, uh, maybe another way of saying it also decreases like pretty steadily with age as well. And growth hormone, we want that to be high because that is going to increase the availability. One of the bonuses of, of GH is that it's going to increase the availability and utility of fats for fuel. Okay. So 
exercise. So I've already like, y'all know my bias, right? Like I like to resistance train. I like to lift heavy shit. Uh, I like to, and I can, I feel like I can swear with you. And I'm so, I'll put a little E on this in case there are little kitties in the car uh, listening with you, but I like to lift heavy weights. Um, so exercise and particularly resistance training, very potent stimulator of growth hormone. So is fasting. Uh, there've been some studies that have demonstrated that a, you know, fasting periods, long, like, you know, um, extended fasts, um, can in some cases double the growth hormone, um, secretion. And of course the net effect of that, uh, at least initially, um, is to help maintain muscle and bone tissue mass over that fasting period. Okay. And then the the other reason that I actually love fasting, not talked about enough, like I've talked about some of the physiology, metabolic implications of fasting, but I think um, this is me kind of getting back to my original roots um, as a neuroscience neuroscientist and um, lover of all things brain um, brain and brain metabolism, is that there's like a dopaminergic reset from hyper palatable foods. So without going on, you know, down a, you know, kind of a vertical of, you know, a rabbit hole, if you will, of, you know, big food and bliss point, we do know that most processed foods do combine a kind of fat with sugar to make it to release dopamine, right? Like it's, it was going to release quite a bit of dopamine. Uh, and it's also going to produce, you know, if there's a lot of sugar in it, you're also going to produce, um, kind of serotonin, um, as well. And what happens of course, when you have such a high, uh, release of dopamine is that you remember exactly what you were doing right before the dopamine release happened. So that might be having a candy bar that might be having, you know, the Lay's chips or, you know, whatever the pretzels or the cakes, the cookie, the cracker, you know, what the crackers, like whatever it was, immediately prior, this is actually the basis for addiction, actually, um, is your brain is going to remember the activity that immediately preceded the dopaminergic release. And you are going to seek out and create, recreate, I should say, um, that situation again. And so fasting from a nutritional standpoint, what I like about it is that it is a dopamine reset from hyper palatable foods because it's not necessarily, well, so there's the hyper palatability. That's the problem. Uh, there's usually like caloric density with low satiety that also, um, that also accompanies, um, these foods as well. And then, you know, some of the other things like when fasting is done properly, it can also help reset circadian biology and augment sleep and, uh, improve insulin, uh, sensitization, um, as well. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna it's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. And... Insulin sensitivity is actually a really important topic for, uh, for women, uh, for women in their perimenopausal and menopausal years, because we become as women more insulin resistant as we age. And again, another word that's kind of nebulous, like what does it even mean to be, uh, you know, insulin resistant? When I was in school, we were kind of taught the lock and key model where like insulin, there's so much insulin, it was like gumming up the insulin receptor. Um, which is kind of a, you know, an outdated uh, model. We like when we're actually defining insulin resistance, there's like three sort of insulin response organs that we are kind of concerned with, right? One is the uh, liver, 
Uh, one is the fat or the uh, you know adipose tissue, and then the third is the muscles, right? Um, and insulin is going to signal you know the muscle, the liver, uh, the adipocyte, right, to take up glucose. Um, insulin also tells the liver, hey girl, you're okay, stop making glucose. So it's going to inhibit gluconeogenesis. And of course the liver is female in my world. <laughs> so insulin's gonna be like, hey girl, you can take a break making all that glucose. I see you multitasking and doing all the detox and all the things. Um, so <laughs> I anthropomorphize everything. I'm sorry, like progesterone is a woman. The liver clearly is a woman uh, because of the multitasking uh, badass that she is. So insulin, <laughs> insulin is gonna say to the muscles, liver fat, take up glucose, take up substrate, please. Uh, insulin is also going to tell, uh, you know, the liver, uh, you don't need to make any more of this hepatic. You don't need to make any more gluco glucose. You're good. Okay. So an impaired ability to do either of those things in the presence of insulin. So muscles, livers, fat, taking up glucose or the liver to be inhibit, like to, to have this inhibitory effect of gluconeogenesis is actually what we call insulin resistance. So it's kind of like in the presence of insulin, if your body is unable to do those two things, take up glucose or the liver to stop making uh, glucose, you are insulin resistant by definition. And again, this is, you know, I read a stat, I believe something like 88%, maybe I think the number was 88 or 90% of women, uh, of, uh, sorry, the population, not just women are metabolically ill. Uh, when we talk about uh, the U.S. and Canada, Western Europe, uh, this insulin resistance piece is pr approximately 50% of the population. Like every other person that you're crossing on the street uh, or that you're riding on the metro or subway with, they're insulin resistant. And it largely goes unrecognized because pr it's pretty much asymptomatic, right? It's It's not when you're insulin resistant, you don't necessarily know it. Like there are some signs, uh, you know, when you've been insulin resistant for many years, like for, from the, like, if you're just kind of looking at the face, like, you know, I'll kind of let you guys in on like a little bit of some of the ob observations that your doctor, if they remember may be making, but like dark circles under the eyes, uh, is usually a sign of insulin resistance, for example. But for most doctors, it goes like, it just slips through the cracks because, you know, it's, it's, it's unrecognizable from just doing like a simple fasting glucose value, right? Because, uh, and we've, we've had, you know, Dr. Casey means on the show. And I, I asked this question, um, and we'll put a link in the show notes to her conversation with me. It was a great one. Um, I had asked her like, Hey, like unicorns and sparkles and rainbows. Like if you had a CGM, like she's, you know, one of the co-founders of levels, uh, if you had a CGM that could do everything, like what would you have? And one of the things she was saying is she would love to be able to also look at insulin because you can have a normal blood glucose on a CGM, but your pancreas could be working like a mother to like the amount of insulin that your body has, to, like those beta cells in the pancreas have to release to get that glucose into a normal range, uh, you know, is like burnout. Let's say that pancreas is going to burn out if we don't do something about it. So you know, CGMs are great. They give you a lot of data, um, but we also want to have an understanding of what's going on at the level um, of the pancreas um, as well. So essentially someone who is insulin resistant, right, is because they can't get glucose into the cell. And then taking that a step further, um, they can't get glucose into glycogen. So glycogen is basically the, the, the storage form, um, of glucose. And this is kind of like the major pathway. This is like the major, major, major problem because women, uh, women and men, let's say who are obese, let's say like, or a type two diabetic, their cells are literally starving. It's not. And I, and I will call my own biases out here. I used to think um, before talking to enough experts and kind of doing enough research that it was like these, these individuals were obese because it was like a lack of willpower or they were just like eating yo-yos or whatever. I don't even think that's a thing. Uh, yo, uh, like I'm trying to think of, what am I trying to think of? It's that like sandwich. It's like a, and it doesn't matter. Like a whole ho-hos maybe anyway. Um, like they're just eating these like bad foods all the time. It's a lack of willpower and they're just like gluttonous. It's not necessarily the case. Obesity is actually quite a complex disease. In in you know a healthy individual, eighty to ninety percent 
of consumed glucose that is not used immediately is stored as glycogen in the muscle and the liver. Someone who's diabetic, we have these processes that have gone awry, right? So uh, we have elevated blood, like the, you know, the first thing is that the liver is continuously producing more glucose, right? Through gluconeogenesis in the presence of insulin. Um, and uh, the second, obviously, is like less glucose is being pulled up into those muscles that are into, I should say, those muscles, into those organs like muscles, uh, liver, uh, and the adipocyte um which use which are primary organs for insulin. So overall, production of glucose is up and clearance is down, right? Um, the other thing I, I will mention just about insulin resistance, like I could honestly talk about that, like just this one slide, we could I could stay here forever. But um insulin resistance, the other thing to note, and this is why I have such a bias for stimulating the neuromusculoskeletal system is that insulin resistance often begins in the muscle, begins in the muscle. So, um, and I believe, um, this is the work of, uh, Gerald Schulman and Peterson at all. I'll find the, I'll find that it's on my, it's knocking around on my hard drive somewhere. I'll find it and I'll put it in the show notes. Um, after just one, count them one, resistance training exercise, you can help reverse some of the insulin resistance that has settled into the muscle. Because just like Alzheimer's doesn't just show up one day when you're 80, it's been going on since you were like 20 or 30 you know, years of age. The same is true uh, for insulin resistance. This is happening in our 15-year-olds, our 25-year-olds, our 35-year-olds, et cetera. And um, you know, without kind of going into the details, but I can, if you will, in a future episode. So please let me know in the comments. Um, I can actually talk about the mechanisms in terms of why that's happening. If you guys want to know about like autophosphorylation and the GLUT4 receptor and all, all of that, but I'll spare. I'll spare you for now, but if you want more details on this, please let me know. And I'm happy to do another uh, podcast episode on insulin resistance and like actual, the mechanistic, um, the mechanisms around it. Okay. Let's get off this slide. Let's move to this one. So, um, for women, um, fasting is clearly different. So I've been talking about some of the benefits, uh, to fasting in terms of hormones, some, some of the sexually dimorphic, like sexual dimorphic present, like presentations, like the liver and clotting factors, growth hormone, et cetera. Um, but this is a big, but, um, a woman obviously with her menstrual cycle has this ever changing hormonal milieu. You've heard me say before, men are like the sun women are like the moon, right? Men are kind of circadian in their nature, meaning that they're kind of the same every day, right? It's like the sun rises and sets kind of at the same, you know, level in the sky, you know, maybe changes through like certain seasons or what have you, but pretty consistent, right? Women more like the moon, right? So we kind of ebb and flow instead of that circadian daily rhythm. Uh, we sort of stretch our rhythm out over the course of about 29.5 or so days for most of us. That's the mean is 29 and a half days for a menstrual cycle. And, you know, for women in their reproductive years, of course, we cycle over that course of that 29.5 days, we're cycling through periods of high estrogen, then low estrogen, then high testosterone, then low testosterone, then high progesterone, then low. Um, and, generally actually just building on the insulin sensitivity conversation, um, we are generally more insulin sensitive in the follicular phase of our cycle than we are in the luteal phase, meaning, uh, and that's actually directly due to uh, progesterone. So progesterone decreases, um, okay, I'm not going to bore you too much with the details, but I will just tell you this, uh, decreases the phosphorylation of glucose into glucose 6-phosphate, okay? so. As such, right? So basically in the luteal phase of the cycle, we are more insulin insensitive. We behave more insulin resistant uh, in the second half of our cycle under the influence uh, of progesterone. So as a general rule, if you're someone who really does enjoy fasting or you need to fast for, let's say you might have PCOS or you have a thyroid condition or you know whatever, um, a general rule is gonna be that aggressive fasting, so longer fasts, are better 
or more tolerated, we'll say, in the follicular phase of your cycle versus the luteal phase. And in the luteal phase, they should be gently, they should be gentle, 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 gentle. Okay. The other thing we want to consider, of course, is that um, if we are aggressively fasting over a long delta, um, we will also we will also see more masculinization, uh, meaning that uh, women are going to stop uh, ovulating if it's done too aggressively, and they will stop menstruating. Okay, so this is uh, I may or may not have talked about my uh, experience. I think I've talked about my experience of. Uh, uh, competing in figure uh, competitions. And I got my body fat so low. It was eight point something. It was like 8.3%. That is not normal. Okay. Uh, I lost my period. I was amenorrheic for a good, probably three, four months. And then when it came back, it was like, it was bad. It was, it was a bad, it was bad news bears. So if you are aggressively fasting, and I would, I would, I would also categorize like overly calorically restricting in there as well. Uh, you are going to, uh, you are going to lose your menstrual cycle. Okay, which is for women a vital sign. If you are a woman, even in perimenopause, even if the shop is closed, ladies, and there's no more babies to be had, your job is to optimize for that fertile cycle, as wonky as it might be. Okay. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention, this is actually a study that just came out this month, October 20, well, actually, I guess it'd be last month now, uh, 22. Uh, they were looking at fasting on some of the sex hormones in obese females. And uh, this was done by uh, Krista Verde. Uh, she's a professor of nutrition at Chicago. Uh, this was produced in, this was uh, published in Obesity in October 22. And basically, they followed a group of pre and post menopausal obese women uh, for a period of eight weeks. And they followed what's called the warrior diet. And this is like a method of intermittent fasting. Basically the warrior diet um, prescribes a, a time restricted feeding window of about four hours a day um, during which dieters can like kind of eat. They don't have to count calories, but they have four hours to eat. And after that four hours is done, they kind of go back to a water fast until the next, um, until their next feeding um, time. And what they found was DHEA. I spoke about this on my with my conversation uh, with Nicole Jardim. Um, this is, you know, I think Nicole called it like the mother hormone or the pro hormone. It was something cute like that. It was like the mother hormone. This is like the this is the hormone that gives rise to progesterones and estrogens and testosterones, et cetera. Um, was decreased in both. Um, the premenopausal and postmenopausal woman at the end of the trial by about 14%. Now, if you're a woman who's tried, let's say, getting pregnant, maybe you've been to a fertility clinic, you know that you've been prescribed DHEA because it is a uh, hormone that improves fertility and it also improves egg quality as well. So 14% drop in eight weeks, uh, even though the values of that study, like, you know, the researcher, researchers noted that, yeah, it dropped 18 or 14% rather, but that was still the 14% that it dropped uh, was still in normal range. I'd argue that, um, you know, with the amount of women that I've seen, people don't just fast for eight weeks and then abandon it, right? It's like, oh no, I'm fasting all the time and I'm going to make it harder and harder and harder for myself. That's kind of, you know, when we typically see this more orthorexic type of behavior. Um, so people don't just, women don't just fast for eight weeks, right? Like, you know, women in many cases are like flamingos. They mate for life. It's like, I am all in for this because it worked a little bit for me in the beginning. So I am going to do it more and more and more. Um, okay. So these are some of the maybe cautionary, um, you know, ways that we want to think about fasting for women. We want to make it like overarching premise here is that we want to make sure that it's gentler. We can't do it like our male counterparts can. The only exception I would, I would say is that women in their menopausal years, um, if we work up a proper fasting tolerance and it's not too aggressive, actually can fast a little bit more aggressively than their perimenopausal, let's say, or or women in their reproductive years in those those female counterparts because their bodies, and of course, there's no disrespect that's meant here. It's just sort of what it is. Like menopausal women don't actually need to optimize anymore for a fertile cycle, like a fertility cycle. They're free from that. They have been given, they have been freed from the golden chain, so to speak. So 
uh, menopausal women in, in many ways can behave more male uh, in that they can um, fast more aggressively. They don't have to take a break for two weeks in the luteal phase, let's say, because they don't have that anymore. Okay. Um, so when I think about fasting, and this is what I was presenting um, the other uh, the other day, I I think of fasting as like three levers, right? So we can manipulate the type of fast. So there's several different types. Uh, we can manipulate the duration, like how long it is um, and how often. So the frequency. So I like to think of fasting as like, what's the type? What's the duration? What's the frequency? Um, and each lever can kind of be, you know, manipulated based on the hormonal composition of, uh, of the woman and whatever the desired outcome, um, might be. So the first, uh, and I write about this actually in the Betty body, uh, in detail, um, is something that, um, I refer to as a non-caloric liquid fast. So this is like water, coffee, you know, teas, um, this is really great. So my ladies with PCOS, this is like super duper fabulous for you because it is one of the best ways to reduce hyperinsulinemia, which is an elevated state of insulin in the blood. And with fasting, you know, like kind of like keto where we're kind of restricting one group, right? And with the ketogenic diet, we're restricting the carbohydrates with fasting, we're restricting everything. We're, we're restricting everything. Uh, the nutrient sense, like the nutrient sensing pathways, like insulin, right? These insulin levels are going to fall. And over time, when we when we apply a fasting strategy, let's say for a woman with PCOS consistently, this is going to help her improve that insulin sensitivity at that cellular level. Another um, another. Uh, type of fast is um, something that I call a caloric liquid fast. So like the name suggests, it's liquid, but it has calories. Uh, this would be where the fasting Puritans will be like, that is not a fast, <laughs> but it is in Steflandia. So uh, I do think that this is very important for gut health. Uh, this is for my ladies um, who have estrogen dominance. Uh, and I will clarify that uh, meaning that estrogen dominance in the luteal phase of her cycle. So I don't, we, there are times in the cycle where you need estrogen to be dominant in the follicular phase. You need a big ass surge of estrogen or else that, that follicle is not developing. So we need estrogen dominance in the follicular phase, but we absolutely do not want it in the luteal phase. We want progesterone to be the dominant hormone. And when you have progesterone in adequate, adequate quantities, of course, it's going to downregulate estrogen receptors and downregulate estrogen secretion, et cetera. Um, but for some women, that relationship goes awry. So we have estrogen dominance relative to progesterone in the luteal phase of the cycle. Bone broth fasting or this caloric liquid fast is a really beautiful uh, you know, solution that I have found clinically works very, very well um, for my ladies with estrogen issues. Uh, and part of that is it is going to help repair the epithelial lining of the gut. Uh, it's going to help reduce leaky gut issues, um, you know, GI distress. And of course, um, a lot of times with women with, with estrogen dominance, one of the problems that we run into, there's kind of two main problems. One is their liver detoxification or their maybe said another way, like their metabolism of estrogen, which is done via the liver, um, is not optimal, right? So their conjugation or their hydroxylation and conjugation, which I won't get into now, but uh, it's those are kind of the two main phases of detox. Then we have elimination. So we have the liver, there's an issue with the liver. And then in the estrobilome in the gut, so this is like the microbiome that's dedicated to um, helping get rid of estrogen is all ha has also gone awry. So a caloric liquid fast, like a bone broth or like soups, that kind of thing. Um, even like, you know, matcha or like, you know, adding some, adding a little bit of calories to, let's say your coffee, maybe with, with some cream or something, um, fatty coffee, fatty tea, that kind of thing. These are very, very helpful for women with estrogen, um, dominance. And it also helps with healthy bowel movements and all y'all know, especially my ladies, my menstruating ladies, one of the best things about getting your period, the period poops, right? So we want, we want healthy bowel movements. 
healthy BMs, um, nothing better. And uh, Sarah Gottfried and I were talking about this when she was on the show. Uh, and she said, uh, gosh, how did she say it? She said, it's so, I, I have to, I'll put a link in the show notes. The way she said it was so funny. It was like, you want it to, you want your bowel movement to be like an Olympic dive. You want it to be straight, you know, one piece and like hits the toilet with like minimal splash. And I was like, yes. <laughs> Really well done, Sarah. So, um, okay. So that's, those are kind of the two uh, ways that I like to think about fasting in terms of type. So we have non-caloric, caloric. Um, so when we're talking specifically about um, your period, okay. So, you know, when we have these period problems, right? PCOS, estrogen dominance, you know, we'll, if we, if we have time on this uh, episode, we'll get into uh, thyroid and uh, leptin resistance and all the things. Um, but your period starts in your brain, ladies. Uh, it starts with the release of follicular stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. And one of the clinical, you know, the clinically salient signs, or let's say yellow to red flags, in my opinion, um, is the ratio of those two hormones with each other. So if you're watching my uh, video on YouTube, you'll see that I have an image of uh, the pituitary gland uh, here. And this is where we see release of FH, uh, the hypothalamus and pituitary gland. We see release of uh, FSH, follicular stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. And the normal ratio, normal stuff, okay? Normal ratio stuff should be like one to one. We measure this on day two or three of the cycle. If you are a woman and you wanna, if you're like, listen, I don't get my period all the time. Sometimes I miss it. Sometimes I don't. I got hair on my chin. I have thinning hair. Maybe we want to also look like run a run a like we want to look at day two or three of your menstrual cycle. So you're bleeding, right? So you want to you want to look at LH and FSH. The normal ratio should be one to one. Okay. A woman with PCOS, uh, this ratio is definitely going to be disturbed. So we're going to have luteinizing hormone rising like two to three, even so, I've even seen higher um, on, on labs, uh, higher than FSH. Okay. So you're going to have this one-to-one ratio LH to FSH completely disturbed. Many times, uh, this is because insulin levels in the body are too high. We've talked a little bit about insulin already. Uh, this, th- there are other reasons that I won't get into now, but like hyperprolactinemia might be another reason uh, why we see that disturbance, which is like higher levels of prolactin um, that are causing an increase in luteinizing hormone um, secretion. Uh, my ladies who, uh, if you're a practitioner and you're in the um, Esteema certification uh, program or you're thinking about it, you know, or you will very shortly know that we talk a lot about genetics uh, in the uh, like pr- genetic predisposition with PCOS specifically, we do see an increase in SRD5A2 activity, uh, which is 5-alpha reductase. Uh, so it's basically like the testosterone to like super testosterone, the dihydrotestosterone, there's an increase in that gene expression. Um, and they, and that actually, uh, that increase in expression, those metabolites also inhibit, uh, estrogen production, um, as well. So when we think about kind of clinically what a woman with PCOS might look like, so if this sounds like you get your set, like, you know, start tracking your cycle, and maybe we want to look at your LH and FSH ratios, um, you're going to think like a woman is going to be overweight. She's going to, it's going to be very difficult for her to lose weight. Um, we might see uh, her body acting uh, more male-like. So that ectopic fat distribution, like that extra weight through the through the abdomen. Uh, she might have like hair growth, let's say chin and cheek uh, area, uh, chest, back, Um She may have that hair loss, like I was saying, that kind of mimics like male pattern baldness. So there might be like a patch kind of at the, at the, at the back of her head. She might have thinning of the temples as well. Um, So if we don't, so when we're thinking about PCOS, I mentioned non-caloric liquid fasts. What happens essentially in PCOS is that the hyperinsulinemic state doesn't uh, well, it prevents the ovarian follicles from reaching ovulation. Okay. So the woman doesn't ovulate. And in case 
I haven't said it a thousand times before. I'll make sure that I say it here again. The main point of your cycle is to ovulate. It's not to bleed. Okay. We want to optimize for ovulation. So that's why a woman with PCOS might have like irregular periods or non-existent uh, periods as well. And um, this is by far the most common hormonal derangement. Uh, like as a clinician, it is by far the most that I have seen in practice with, with women, certainly estrogen dominance and Hashimoto's thyroiditis are like a close second. Um, but uh, the data that I have is like a hundred million women worldwide. Like, you know, that's a, that's a number, eh? Like that's a, that's a number, like a hundred million women worldwide. It is the most common uh, endocrine disorder of women of reproductive age. And it is the leading cause of ovary, uh, like ovulatory infertility. I mean, it's a number, man, like a hundred million. Like I don't even like, if we just looked at the States, that's a third of the States. Like that is a, just an incomparable um, number. Um, and so we really want to be aware of some of the, cl like the clinically salient signs, right? So some of the things I just described, like the body is sort of behaving more male, irregular, infrequent periods, that kind of thing. Um, for a woman like this, um, I really like to use that non-caloric, uh, that non-caloric liquid fast. And I also like to, um, so it's like the, just the water, just the coffee, just the herbal teas, let's say. And then if she doesn't know where she is in her cycle, because it's been months since she last had one, uh, then you just start where you start. Like you just start increasing her fasting tolerance and you may start like a 12, 12, maybe you do a, you know, 14, 10. Um, I really like for a woman with PCOS, if we can kind of get a sense of where she's in her cycle. Um, and this is not everybody, but I will say it's many women that I've worked with, with PCOS. I will fast. They will have a 24 hour fast one to three times a week, depending on the severity. And I usually front load that um, in the follicular phase because it's easier for her to do, but I will continue it in the luteal phase as well uh, because of the just marked uh, insulin uh, resistance. And we're just trying to get it under control. Uh, and I'll probably do that for a couple of cycles until we start being able to predict with a little bit more uh, accuracy where she is in her cycle that she's bleeding. And then we're looking at other things like cervical fluid and all the other, all the other stuff. Okay. Um, so I'll, maybe what I'll do is I'll talk, uh, I just, I actually said this to the, to the, <laughs> to the staff at Oxford. I was like, guys, I totally over-prepared for this. I have like a four hour presentation and I only have 45 minutes. So maybe what I'll do is, um, I will cover estrogen dominance, uh, because that is again, like a very common, a uh, thing that we typically see uh, in practice, and you are probably a woman who, if you've experienced any kind of PMS, you probably want to hear this as well. And then maybe next week, what I'll do is I'll continue with this fasting topic, but I'll go into a little bit more detail with like leptin resistance, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, um, and some of the other considerations that we might make for uh, those uh, populations. Um, okay. So estrogen dominance. Um, I love this image. If you're watching this on YouTube, um, this is, you know, a hormonal imbalance. It can cause like mood swings and depression and weight gain. And I remember when I was healing in my own journey, like my, I, you know, I called my breasts like angry breasts, like I like t-shirts bothered everything. Like I didn't want anything. It kind of reminded me actually when I was breastfeeding, I remember the first kind of early days of breastfeeding, like anything touching my area, like anything touching my nipples. It was like, oh my God, they're on fire. And it's kind of estrogen dominance kind of feels um, like that. And I mentioned already that it's not estrogen dominance throughout the cycle. It's just in the luteal phase. We, we want progesterone to be the main uh, hormone of the uh, sex hormone of the luteal phase of the cycle, not estrogen. Um, so one of the things that I typically focus on with estrogen dominance is liver, like a sluggish liver, possibly where we're looking at augmenting hydroxylation and conjugation, which is just two fancy words for uh, metabolizing estrogen properly, and then sending it into the gut and working on gut health so that we can get rid of the, um, you know, the estrobilone can uh, 
effectively get rid of estrogen. Like the golden rule of estrogen is use it and then uh, lose it. Um, and so what I will typically do with a woman with estrogen dominance is we will typically fast, you know, kind of opposite to PCOS. So PCOS is like aggressively faster in the follicular phase of the cycle, get that FSH to LH ratio kind of on point. Um, with an estrogen dominant woman, I'm probably going to be fasting, giving her a caloric liquid fast in the luteal phase of her cycle, because that's when we run into the most problems, right? Um, so we will give her like, you know, again, depending on severity, every patient is a little, every, every woman is a little different. Um, but we might be giving her one to four days, one to three days in most cases, um, a, uh, you know, a, a, a feeding window where we are, you know, restricting her calories that day. Uh, and what she's having is those calories coming through her soups. Um, it can be the bone broth, as I mentioned, it can also be like, like uh, uh, minestrone and uh, like just like uh, broth based soups. Uh, Sometimes I'll have chicken soup without the rice, let's say uh, for a woman. So it'll be like, you know, boiled chicken, let's say in a bouillon, like in a, you know, uh, boil some water, put a little bouillon in it. If you don't have your own bone broth, you can, uh, you can add the bouillon cube um, and then some pulled chicken, uh, maybe some, maybe a little bit of rice as well. That's, that's fine. Um, so you're getting calories, but it's like a caloric restricted model where we're trying to help with, um, um, uh, with gut health and with liver uh, detoxification, um, as well. Okay. So, um, I hope that you have, uh, found some value here. Uh, I didn't quite get through leptin, didn't quite get through thyroid. Uh, this was a bit more of a technical uh, episode. So this is just me kind of nerding out a little bit harder than maybe uh, you have heard with like interviews or or, or whatnot, but uh, this is who I am. <laughs> so uh, I would love to hear what you're thinking about this format. I'm going to have... Um, a few more that I'm preparing for you over the course of the month. And I hope that you really enjoy it. And I would love if you want to leave a review uh, on iTunes. I like we read all of them. Uh, good, bad, ugly. Uh, certainly, if you uh, if you're enjoying the show, we always want to hear that. If there's ways that we can improve the show, we want to hear that as well. Um, in a constructive manner, of course, please don't shout at me in caps. Um, <laughs> well, actually, you can do whatever you want. You can shout at me in caps if you'd like. Um, anyhow, so I hope that you enjoyed this. And next week, We'll continue the rest of this lecture series on fasting for women and how we can apply it uh, to different hormonal derangements, let's say. Um, and yeah, looking forward to uh, looking forward to talking to you soon. Bye for now. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 